Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is the Runner's World Podcast. Welcome to the Runner's World Podcast with me, Rick Pearson. And me, Ben Hobson. Today we're talking to Michael Crawley about his brilliant new book, Out of Thin Air, which investigates Ethiopian running culture. It's really interesting. You know, just so anyone who gets to that third second of our intro who needs a, a <laughs> bit more encouragement to keep listening, it's very, very interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's, it's such an interesting, unorthodox uh, running culture. And Michael's book really kind of takes a deep dive into nice. it. Nice, nice. Yeah. Um, so, Rick, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come sh- hard and fast with some science. Whoa, okay. It's relating to the two-hour marathon. So people are probably be like, oh, I know about the two-hour marathon. And this probably won't surprise you, but a study has revealed the physical demands of a two-hour marathon. Now, I know what you're thinking. It's going to be demanding. It's a very fast <laughs> marathon. But it's quite, there's some, t- some, some takeaways which I think kind of apply to everyone. So basically, the, uh, Professor Andrew Jones at the University of Exeter led this sort of study using data from Nike's Breaking 2 project and, and all this, and they analysed the 16 athletes that were that taking part. Um, and the, basically, the study found that a 59-kilogram runner would need to, in, uh, to take in about 4 litres of oxygen per minute, which is about 67 mils per kilogram of weight per minute, to maintain a two-hour marathon pace, which is 21.1 kilometres an hour. <gasps> a lot of stats here, Ben. Oh, well, that was a big old that was a big dump of science. So this is basically steady state VO2. So we always talk about VO2 max and how like that's your sort of like peak performance, but this is more about a combination of steady state VO2, and in addition to the VO2 max sort of stuff, there's characteristics on running economy, meaning the body uses the oxygen efficiently, so you're not mm. sort of flailing around and being terrible. And then the third is like a lactate turn point, which is the percentage of VO2 max a runner can sustain before anaerobic um, respiration begins. So the whole study is based around everyone sort of like touted the sort of the certain like, oh, this this runner's got this incredible VO2 max and this Mm. guy's got the most, you know, fantastic economy, blah, blah. But the study actually shows that like it had to be, everything actually had to be perfect. For, from all these guys so it's a balance between all of these three sort of um key factors within it and i think that that's kind of like the biggest takeaway was anyone who's looking to improve their their running mm. um not maybe you know i know that your your eye is cast firmly on a sub two hour marathon still rick you still think <laughs> you've got you've got that in the bag do you but, think at, at 35 I, I could still no i could still do it i could still do it go on, no, carry on. You, i think that's younger than kipchoge so uh, you know um 
you know, I think that it's that thing of like, it's not just a really high VO2 or really good economy or this and this and this. It's, it, it's working across the broad spectrum of running. And I think that that, that study is quite interesting uh, in terms of like, even at the top, top end of how everyone runs, it's kind of like those are the, you know, those are the key factors. So anyway, there'll be a, there'll, this will get broken down and I'm sure I'll write something on the website for it. So anyone who wants to go and have a look, but that was my small swift dose of science first Whoa, thing that, that's, that's big that's some big stuff there i'm going to give you a little bit of pseudoscience as well so this is about walk running so we talked about the elite end and now this is this is for the the every man or every woman marathon runner so study found that walk run methods resulted in less muscle soreness and similar marathon times in novice runners so Lots of runners might think the idea of, of walking sections of a race or, or long run is kind of a, set, a sign of defeat, but it shouldn't be. This, this new study found that walk-run method, where you walk some and then you run some, you're going to be running more than you're walking, but you're taking these walking breaks, actually resulted in less muscle soreness and similar marathon times in a group of runners. So basically the run walkers, that their, their range of times were, were 4 hours 14 to 4 hours 34 for a marathon. Mm-hmm. And actually the runners... The, you know the, the run only group were 407 to 434 so actually only you know, very very similar times really so it shows that actually if you're if you're smart about the run walk stuff you can actually get round in a in a similar time if you're a kind of four hour to four hour 30 marathon runner surprising i mean well i think we should bring on our guest of the week ben what do you think yes let's do it guest of the week Ethiopian men hold six of the top fastest marathon times ever. The female 5,000 meter and 10,000 meter records are also held by natives of the East African nation. In Ethiopia, running is not a pastime, but a central pillar of life. But what can we learn from the way they train? Michael Crawley, a 220 marathon runner and assistant professor in social anthropology at Durham University, spent 15 months in Ethiopia training alongside some of the country's best runners and distilled his findings into the excellent Out of Thin Air. So we're delighted to have Michael on the podcast now. So welcome, Michael, to the Runners World podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. One of the things that comes across in your book, I think, is the Ethiopian belief in the in the power of the group. How important is that? Uh, to the way they train uh well that was you know really incredibly central to to the way that they think about running really i suppose um i first start writing up about it in the book uh on the first morning that i go out for a run where i sort of just went up into the forest above addis and started running um on my own because i thought that was probably the most sensible thing when i just got to altitude mm. and somebody literally came and grabbed me and sort of dragged me into this group of um five or six people running along uh, and they explained to me afterwards, they said, uh, what was it? Running alone is just for health uh, to be changed. You've got to run with other people. So it's very much this idea that, um, yeah, you can go running on your own, but that's just what you do for um, if, if you're just trying to stay healthy. It's not not something that's going to make you improve as an athlete. Um, they believe quite strongly that um, this kind of shared energy between people. So uh, mm. they would uh, run their harder sessions in a sort of single file line of people. And the idea was that the person at the front would um, be expending a lot more energy than the people further back in the group. So they kind of think about it in in terms similar to uh, cyclists, I suppose, in that sense. Yeah, right. Um, So they would make sure that they were sharing the sort of responsibility of leading the group. Um, And in those situations as well, people would run basically with their feet in time with each other. So um, everyone's right foot hitting the ground simultaneously and then everyone's left foot. And 
the wow. cadence of everyone's cadence is basically uh, in, in time with each other. So they describe that as following each other's feet. Um, and that was something that was almost impossible for me to get used to because we just don't think about things in that way in the UK. Yeah. And um, I have this kind of quite long loping stride. I'm sort of six foot tall. Uh, it was almost impossible for me to actually to kind of um, to, to adapt to that with with guys who are sort of five foot two and had have these really efficient compact sort of strides. So, um, but yeah, they they definitely believe that, and it was one of the things that they've talked about in interviews that I've done around um, the situation with COVID is that people have really struggled in Ethiopia with not being able to train in a group more than mm. I think even we have um, in the UK, and they say that it's impossible to know what sort of shape they're in because they're not training with other people, even though they've got some of the top professionals have GPS watches and things, you'd think that they would be able to monitor their shape, but they say that's something that you do in relation to other people. So it's, um, it's been a problem for them not being able to train in the group. Well, that's fascinating, isn't it? It's really hugely integral to the way they train that kind of idea of collective responsibility almost for the pacing and all the rest of it. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Does that sort of extend beyond just the betterment as runners then? Is that, does that sort of very much tie into sort of the, the sort of larger community? Well, it's very similar to the way that they maybe think about um, eating and drinking together being very important. That's, you know, eating a meal on your own in a restaurant in Ethiopia is almost uh, unheard of. You know, you would always be sharing food with other people um, within sort of groups of, of friends or family. So uh, I suppose it's, yeah, it's quite similar to, to the way that they approach other aspects of life. I want to talk about surfaces, Michael, because that's one thing that comes across in in the book, that there are kind of distinct surfaces that people train on in Ethiopia, and perhaps they're actually more suspicious about concrete, which would be, for a Western runner, probably where most of our our running's done. What is the Ethiopian attitude to to kind of running on asphalt or concrete? Uh, Basically, that it should be avoided at all costs, (laughs) (laughs) maybe once a week that you would run um if you're a marathon runner you'd run once a week on on the road on a friday morning normally um in order to get your legs used to the pounding of of being on the road but the um the basic belief is that if you if you run on hard surfaces all the time you just kind of kill the speed in your legs um and Mm. the the best thing to do is to run uh in the forests or on what they refer to as coraconch uh, which is basically kind of rough roads um kind of gravelly surfaces um so yeah, they, um, yeah, it's very much this belief that you should try to avoid hard surfaces if you can. But it's not. I mean, I write a lot in the book about uh, the importance that people place on training in the forest and kind of this more meandering way of running where they kind of zigzag through the trees and things. Um, but there is definitely still a very kind of objective uh, aspect of training, which is when they do go to the road on a Friday morning and they'll run sort of twenty kilometers flat out. Um, and that's on a bit of road where there's kilometer markers. Um, so every kilometer they can check the time they're running. And it's also a stretch of road where you, they can compare themselves to uh, other athletes, you know, the right. top marathon runners at the moment, but also top runners from the past. You know, people will know what kind of times Gebra Selassie ran for particular stretches of road. So um, they've kind of got this the attitude is that you should have these um, opportunities to be really objective at some points in the week, but also uh other kinds of training that are about um something other than kind of objectivity and trying to measure everything all the time yeah uh super important i I like the fact that there's um sort of stretches of road that that's where you go yeah that that you go to test yourself against 
pre-existing times and all that sort of stuff. I know it's like going to a track, but I like the I like the fact that they're just doing it on a road. That like that makes it feel really proper to me. It's like a Strava segment, isn't it? They kind of the, the, <laughs> yeah. the, 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 the Gabby Selassie segment on the on the road, unbeatable. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be great to get them on Strava, actually. Those, cause it's, there's basically one in a place called Sebeta, which is what they refer to as low altitude at sort of 2,200 meters, and that's very <laughs> right. flat. And then there's another stretch of road up in Sindafa, which is um, sort of undulates between about maybe 2,400 and 2,700 meters, and it's really hilly. Um, but there were, one of the sort of characters who features a lot in the book is a, a guy called Seda Ayana. Um, and when I first arrived, he'd he had this reputation of being able to cover the 30k in Sandapa really fast. Um, even though he'd never, he'd not been to a race abroad, but he was always sort of, people would say he was one to watch and he has gone right. on to being, um, to running 206 and coming third in Dubai, winning Seville, things like that. So people know based on what, what kind of times people can run on those stretches of road, what they'll be capable of doing abroad. That's amazing. Um, in, in the book, you, you say that in a, um, uh, sorry, sorry. In the book, you say that uh, in Ethiopia, being described as a dangerous runner is it actually a big compliment. What does that mean? Uh, it it basically means that um, that people would try to tap into this idea of making things as interesting as possible and trying to make running into a kind of adventure. Right. Um, so people would kind of plan training sessions sort of several days in advance and sort of talk about them before they they did them and. Um, there'd be kind of ex- extreme examples of this would be getting up at three o'clock in the morning to go and run up and down a hill, for example, right. which would be something that um, to us maybe seems a bit illogical. You're kind of disrupting your sleep and things, but it was seen as kind of embracing this idea of being kind of dangerous and a little bit crazy in your training in order to kind of um, just kind of cultivate a sense of being being strong and being kind of brave as an athlete, I suppose. Um, but it was also something that people would say about, um, you know, running it, basically the forests above Addis are very difficult to run in. They're kind of very steep. There's loads of tree roots that you kind of got loose stones everywhere. They're not, they wouldn't really be seen as an ideal running terrain to most people. Mm. So they're also kind of embracing the risk of running on that kind of surface. I think when they talk about dangerousness, um, it's about making that kind of risk that is inherent in running as a career in general kind of come to the surface by uh, acknowledging it in the environments that they run in it's interesting I mean, there's that great passage in the book we, we talk about doing these hill reps at 3 a.m and uh after a few weeks you, you begin to see the the benefit of that and you think actually the next time i get on a, on a start line and I, I look around at people i'm going to know that no no one else has has uh, has kind of made the sacrifices or trained the way that i have and i think that's a, that gives you a real kind of competitive advantage if you can look around at people and think well, I think I'm, I've been prepared to do something that no one else here has. Yeah, that's basically the, the idea of it, I think. And those sessions would be done with much smaller groups of athletes. So that would be sort of the three or four people that I lived with in the compound, um, as opposed to the big group. So you've kind of got this this really big group that that um, that is going to training sessions in the bus um, three times a week. And then you've got these kind of smaller groups of friends who are also sort of trying to work out how they can run together in order to improve in relation to the larger group right. as well. Um, but yeah, they, uh, that was, I think those hill reps as well were kind of a demonstration of why it was important to do this as an anthropologist, because I would just never have known that, that was happening had I not been living mm. alongside them for, the, for that amount of time. Because the first six months, I was just blissfully sleeping through those excursions into the, <laughs> <laughs> into the night. It wasn't until I kind of got to know people well enough that they said, do you want to come out and run up and down a hill at three in the morning? 
Was that kind of like a you you was that a moment when you felt like you'd made it? Yeah, it was the moment I felt like they kind of trusted me enough to let me in on that kind of thing. Um, I think yeah, Fassel said in the morning, you know, after I'd agreed to come, I think they were a bit surprised when I actually got up and I went out with them and said, <laughs> uh, you know, you're not a Ferenc anymore. Ferenc is kind of the word that they they use for sort of foreigner or um, kind of white person, I guess. Yeah. Um, he was like, you're not a Ferenc anymore. You're Habesha, which means which is kind of like Ethiopian. Um, so, yeah, they, good. it was it was a moment of acceptance, I think. Yeah, yeah. that's like a, it's like an initi- initiation ceremony for you, that one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. What, what what role does a, a belief in in God play in Ethiopian running culture? Uh, really, quite a strong one, I think. So they they believe in a kind of um, a version of fate. So they use the word idyll in Amharic, which means kind of chance, uh, mm. really. But the the overall belief is that everything that happens really is ultimately decided by God. So um, you can influence that through your behavior, but at the end of the day, it's it's really kind of up to God and God's plan for you. So um, the way that you can influence it is, is to kind of try to behave with a disposition of kind of silence and patience and hard work. Um, and that's a belief that um, that's not unique to running. That's just the way that um, Amhara people especially think about um the disposition of, of living more broadly, but it happens to fit pretty well with distance running to be patient and to um, take things gradually and to accept what your coach is telling you and things like that. So um, that is a disposition, the, the kind of religious disposition I think fits with um, athletic success, but it also means that they're very um, accepting of defeat or of bad performances because they tend to just say, well, you know, uh, God didn't want it to happen today um maybe my time will come in the next race it kind of it fits into a broader plan it allows mm. people to kind of um rationalize defeat i think um better yeah i was chatting to, to a friend about this and i said i think that in sports that are very very physically demanding or or have a kind of danger aspect to them or just a very tough that, that a belief in in god could be a huge advantage from a kind of like giving that kind of sense of conviction or that some, that somebody's kind of rooting for you. I think that, that I can see that being a big confidence booster. Yeah. And I think it's not just Ethiopian runners. I think a lot of yeah. top American runners and uh, you know, some, some of the British runners the European runners, they, if you see the camera kind of panning across the start line of a major championships, most people are kind of making the sign of a cross or there's some kind of religious yeah. sort of sign going on. Um, I yeah I I can never really get my head around how everyone can believe that God's rooting for them at the same time but that's just <laughs> my true. my own sort of <laughs> take on it but yeah it does seem like religious conviction and sort of endurance athletic success there's some sort of correlation there yeah definitely um, oh yeah for sure because you've got to you've also got to take into fact that people are training relentlessly weeks on end to get to a start line where mm. there is still a, you're there's a huge degree of chance about relating to success, regardless of how much you've put in. And I feel like mm. if you if you can uh, align that chance with kind of like a greater being rather than just it might happen, it might not. Yeah. It kind of it, it takes the responsibility away from you a bit. If you see what yeah, I mean, so it's, it's it's kind of like a higher. There's a higher degree of you know uh, order or something that's allowing me to get to this point and I'll train as hard as I can but then beyond that we'll see what happens and it kind of mm. it, it it lifts a burden a bit yeah it allows you to kind of fit it into a broader narrative yeah mm. that makes sense I think. yeah um I think you also uh the Ethiopians believe in uh, the energy is trans bodily um which kind of maybe ties into sort of 
idea of a higher being, certainly. Can you explain this further and, and how this informs their training? Yeah, I think I kind of touched upon it a little bit with the with what I was saying about the way that they think about pacemaking, I guess. Right. Um, but it's just basically the idea that um, that your 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 energy is kind of shared with other people. It's kind of subject to give and take with others, depending on how you're running with them. So who's leading and who's following and things like that. But also that um, energy is kind of derived in particular ways from different parts of the city. So they believe very strongly in using different environments around Addis Ababa to train. So going to Intoto, which is the mountain, um, in order to run really slowly, but very high up at sort of 3000 meters above sea level. Um, and that that being a way of kind of drawing a particular energy from um, the high altitude and from that environment of the, of the mountain, which is kind of also dotted with lots of um, Ethiopian Orthodox churches. Um, and that that energy is then kind of transferable in particular ways with other people. Um, mm. There's also a specific kind of uh, witchcraft in Ethiopia, which involves um, taking an item of someone else's running kit to a witch doctor, and then the witch doctor is able to basically um, draw some of that other person's energy away from them and towards you. So that's kind of an illicit way of, of thinking about this, that you can wow. uh, basically, you can actually steal someone else's energy. Um, so that can make runners a little bit suspicious of each other and things as well but um but yeah basically just this idea that energy is less of the um less thought of as like bounded within a, a particular individual as we might think of it and more something that can be shared amongst other people now i've got to ask you michael about the ethiopian cross-country championship because it's, it's one of my favorite parts of the book when you go there because i mean as i said in the intro you, you are a very very good runner you're a you're a 220 marathon runner so most most races you go to you're going to be you know up at the front but that wasn't the that wasn't the experience at the Ethiopian cross-country championships, was it? No, I mean, it was quite difficult to get into the race in the first place. I really wanted to run it just because people would, you know, everyone had been talking about it for, for sort of a month beforehand. Um, but we went to the Federation and they said, look, if you've, you've run 30.07 for 10K, you're going to struggle to not get lapped at this altitude on that course. <laughs> um, and so they suggested me going in the junior race, which was 8K for under 20s. But I thought, you know, that's not really, um, I, I don't know. I just felt a bit weird about that <laughs> turning up at 30 or however old I was to run the junior race. So I eventually persuaded them to let me run. But it was, uh, I, uh, I shouldn't give away whether I got lapped yeah. or not, but it was touch yeah. and go. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's amazing. Way. One of the great things you say is like, I don't know how many people there are in the race, but say there's 150 people in the race. 149 of those people so everyone probably apart from michael thinks they're going to win and they and they run and they almost run in that way right there's actually this kind of it's incredibly competitive there's, there's not like one or two three people who think they're going to win like dozens and dozens of people seemingly run in at a pace where they they you know they're, they're actually trying to to win the thing yeah and but, yeah because my attitude was um to try to finish the race and not not drop out and not get laps um most most of the races that you watch in Ethiopia, I mean, there's there's not really any mass participation running apart from the Great Ethiopian Run. Right. Um, but they're kind of domestic, the club races and things. If people are not going to be in the top sort of 10 or 15, then it's pretty um, common for them to just stop and drop out and save themselves for the next race. There's kind of not, not really much of a sense of, um, you know, pride around dropping out in the way that there might be. Uh, in the UK, people just they, they race at the front, and then if they can't, then they they often just drop out. So that's, this is the problem. Whenever I was um, 
when I ran the great Ethiopian run from the elite start, whenever I caught someone, they would just drop out. So I kind of remained in, in kind of perpetual last place. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's it brilliant. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's a brilliant chapter. I love that bit. I thought that was, that was really eye-opening. Because um, I, I, hadn't you sort of finished fifth in the Scottish Championship as well? So uh, I think I was seventh. Seventh, I've, right. Yeah, seventh is the highest I've been in Scotland. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. quite, it's all relative, isn't it, I suppose? Yeah, it is, yeah. No, it's great. It's a great bit. This is the Runner's World Podcast. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Upon returning to to Scotland, um you uh, you trained for a marathon, I guess, like the, the Ethiopian way. Um, what did that involve and would you recommend it? I did. I Basically, yeah, when I got back, I was a little bit disillusioned with the running. Just, But I think in some ways, just having spent so much time with people who were so much better than yeah. me, uh, it was a bit difficult to get motivated to sort of find a goal and things. So I decided to train um, for to try to get, get fit again by following a training program that I asked um, Hylia, who was a um, good friend in Ethiopia, to write along with um Getimese Mola who's coach um of the group and they basically yeah it was interesting because it, it just emphasized slightly different things to what we would normally emphasize so it would sort of start off with a um description of the surface they wanted me to run on so kind of emphasizing that kind of thing um which meant that I had to I had to do a huge amount of running basically on golf courses um in Edinburgh <laughs> which was the only way to to mimic the kinds of surfaces that they wanted kind of a kind of hilly surface with some trees and but a very soft surface as well um i ended up doing a lot more running kind of around arthur's seat um sort of really really kind of hilly sort of trail running type um type stuff um and then yeah trying to avoid the road apart from once a week um but i was also i kind of um brought in some aspects of ethiopian training but also was being coached still by my coach in the uk for, for parts of it so it was kind of like a hybrid of um i don't know 1980s uh gates of harriers running culture and ethiopian running oh, culture at the same time maybe a kind of fusion <laughs> yeah exactly but the aim uh, with all of it i suppose is just to make it as interesting as possible and to kind of make it into a bit of an adventure and to yeah um and that's kind of yeah the the motivation for using both of those different kinds of sources of inspiration i suppose you've just got to find something that that makes you feel like it's worth putting the effort in and, and keeping it interesting and you ran well off the back of it, didn't you? Yeah, the yeah. So I ran Edinburgh 
uh, around 2.24 and came third at Edinburgh on um, kind of quite windy. Uh, it's never that good conditions in Edinburgh. And then around 2.20 in uh, Frankfurt. So, um, yeah, it seems seems to work for me. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, amazing. Um, but I, I, really, I really like the idea of the kind of the imagination of some of this running. So kind of zigzagging on off-road rather than just doing lots and lots of... Because I think it's really easy with particularly marathon training for it to all start to feel quite similar and kind of and unimaginative i guess you know oh, i've got to do five miles today and then it's tuesday is this or whatever and I, this this feels like it has just a bit more wriggle room for like exploration and adventure i think yeah that's that's basically the idea of it and i, I was definitely guilty before i went away of um being really boring with some of my running um just running laps of the meadows in edinburgh for example just like a, loads of laps around a big park and yeah it's definitely changed my attitude to um easy and steady runs where i do try to make it a bit more interesting if i can oh, that's cool i like the idea of you running around like the golf course did you, how, how did that go down with the, <laughs> well, the players i i tried to go really early in the morning although golfers seem to get up pretty early as well um yeah. so it's a bit it, it was a bit tricky i found the best days to go to the golf course is when the weather's terrible because then there's often right, the right. but it's been I, I really um it was the best thing about lockdown for me was being able to go and run on the golf course yeah. with no one on them um, yeah. I don't know how many other people found that, but that was great. Um, oh, that's great! Your book, Michael, is, is out. Uh, is out now, isn't it? So people can. Where can people go and uh, and read it? Uh, there's a link on my uh, in my Twitter bio for different bookshops, but basically uh, most places: um, Waterstones, uh, Amazon, obviously. There's Portobello Bookshop, my old local bookshop in Edinburgh, doing signed copies. If anyone wants one of those, uh, oh, great. also Blackwell's. Um, uh bookshop the uh the one that kind of brings together all the independent publishers uh lots of oh great yeah brilliant well uh michael thank you so much for coming on the runners world podcast I, i've absolutely loved reading out of thin air and I'm, I'm trying to incorporate some of the the ethiopian way of training into my own slightly <laughs> slower running so uh, thank you for that thanks, a lot. <laughs> thanks thank you very much this is the runners world podcast so that brings us to the end of this week's runners world podcast a big thanks to our guest michael crawley and to you of course for listening you can still subscribe to Runners World magazine today and get three issues for just £5. So, so visit hearstmagazines.co.uk slash Podcast to get this exclusive listener offer. Now, the Runners World podcast is available on Acast, iTunes and all of your favourite podcast apps. Just search Runners World UK. Please subscribe. That is the most important thing. If you take anything away from today's podcast, regardless of the wonderful book that Michael has written and the deep learning about how running should be fun, ignore that subscribe to our podcast thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.